Welcome to the In Search For More podcast, where guests join me in my search for more. More from myself and more from life. I'm your host, Ellie Nash. I sit down, sometimes with one person, and often with a panel, to talk about various topics I'm interested in learning more about. Welcome back to the In Search For More podcast. Today I sit down with Omar Pinto, a life coach, a recovery coach, a close friend of mine, and a coach that I've been working with for the past year or so. And the conversation today is religious guilt. Omar grew up Jehovah's Witness. He remained part of that until the age of 18. And despite the fact that he left, you know, there's still some of that that stays with you. I grew up in an Orthodox Jewish community, and while I still am close to my faith, I would say I, today I live very differently than the way I was brought up. I was brought up in a Hasidic Orthodox environment, and although I left the rigid practice of that in my early 20s, in many ways the ideas and beliefs that I absorbed then stay with me until now. Some of them positive, I would even say most of them positive, but this idea of religious guilt and I view religious guilt almost as synonymous with fear of punishment or this idea that there is a whoever our higher power or source is, we believe it to be a punitive one. And that belief can create a lot of toxicity in our lives. So we'll jump right in and I will see you on the other side. This topic is super interesting for me to talk about. It's forgive me for my guilt. It's all about religious guilt. Truth is, we can even broaden it to guilt in general because guilt and obligation is something that a lot of us pile on each other. So the reason why I decided to have this discussion and have a discussion with Omar is because Omar and I have been working together the last bunch of months. Omar is a life coach. He did a mic drop. For those who are familiar with mic drop, he did a mic drop a couple of years ago. And after that, he and I started chatting. And one thing led to another. And once a week, Omar and I jump on a call together. And he also coached me through a variety of stuff. Usually, it starts with a business-related issue and kind of works its way <laughs> works its way from there. And it one typically the starts things- somewhere and ends somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does. And one of the things that have been coming up a lot lately is this... Uh, relationship with guilt, punishment, obligation, so on and so forth. So I actually did not know this about Omar uh, while we were working together. I only learned it about him about six or eight weeks ago. I was on his website for something. I think uh, I was sharing his contact information for someone who I thought he'd be able to help. And in browsing his website, I saw that one of the things that Omar uh, helps people with is religious guilt, right? Is that correct? Yeah, religious religious trauma. Religious trauma. Can you define religious trauma? Well, I I define it basically the way that it affected me growing up, which is a lot of what this conversation is going to be about, which is about that feeling of guilt and shame associated with being in in a religious organization and then leaving that religious organization. So, you know, as a kid growing up, there, there was a I grew up as a Jehovah's Witness, uh, born into it. So for the first 18 years of my life, um, I attended uh, Jehovah's Witness uh, functions and religious uh, meetings. And I, very, very early on, I would say probably 
before my teens, I knew that this wasn't for me. I wasn't in, it wasn't in alignment with my values back before I you even described knew Jehovah's Jehovah's witness a little bit. I don't know much about it. The only thing I know is that they don't do blood transfusions. Yeah. I think. So Jehovah's witnesses categorize yes. as a Christian faith. Okay. So Christian faith and, um, Yes, the belief systems or the structure there. There's a, there's a few things that that separate them. One is that they uh, do they're very zealous about doing preaching work. So they do a lot of they they spend a lot of time going door to door to people's homes to try and um, bring them information about what they call the good news. Um, and then so that'd be recruit them to the religion. Yes, it's really to yeah. recruit them to come into the convert them religion. to Christianity. Yeah. I you know I I without being too. You know, I, without being too negative, um, I've always kind of, I've always associated the Jehovah's Witness religion as as cultish. Um, it really, it, it really affected me a lot because, um, again, just the broad strokes, no religion. There's no holidays. There's no celebration of holidays. So no Christmas, no birthdays, um, nothing that involves. Um, celebrations within the school. So if they were having some sort of a Christmas parade or a Christmas turnout, we weren't allowed to attend. Halloween, forget about it. That would, no trick-or-treating. We weren't allowed to dress up. Uh, school dances were not allowed because it's associating with the, the kids from school. And there's this, this idea that bad association spoils useful habits. That's, I mean, there's stuff that stuck with me still, you know, 50 years later which is this learning process of separation. So hanging around with people or spending time with people that are not of the Jehovah's Witness faith is dangerous because it could potentially poison your thinking. It could pull you out of the organization. So everything was designed to keep you in-house. So your friends, Jehovah's Witness, okay? Um, Religious, any activities, only with Jehovah's Witnesses. So if you're going to go to a barbecue, you're going to go to a picnic, you're going to go to a party, right? It has to be a Jehovah's Witness approved. Um, and so, and yes, there's no blood. You can't accept blood transfusions. Um, the idea is really to keep, to keep you, oh, and uh, higher education, higher learning is not encouraged at all. So basically finish gotcha. high school and then get into the preaching work very zealously. So- Today, you're no longer Jehovah's Witness. I left on my 18th birthday because that was like I asked to leave earlier, which was I was, you know, that was where I was going to. I was I asked if I could leave. Like I said, between I was, early teens, I knew this wasn't for me. At 16, I said to my mom, mom, this isn't working for me. I, I, I don't want to be a part of this anymore. Right. Um, and she's like, can you just stay until you're 18 since you're you know, still a minor? Um, and that was back when I, I said, yes, I said, sure, mom. Right. And so at my 18th birthday, I turned 18. I said, mom, your mom asked that nicely. Huh? Your mom asked that nicely. She did actually, (laughs) because, because at the time I was not as strong or as rebellious as I am today. Okay. To today, this version of Orma would have been absolutely out of the question. Now, one more day, now one more hour, now one more minute, and says somebody comes in here and puts a gun in my head, and even still, I'm, I'll probably not go. Okay, but back then... I'll take the bullet. Yeah, I was a, I was a mama's boy. Okay, uh, my dad was a bit of a bully. Uh, he was no longer going to uh, the religious functions. My mom was the one in charge. 
Um, so my dad really wanted to have nothing to do with it. So he kind of just put my mom in charge of that area of our lives. He also, he also had a lot of religious guilt. So my father was a Jehovah's Witness. My parents met as Jehovah's Witnesses. So this is the, this is the, do you want this story? Yeah, for sure. Okay. All right. So this is, this is actually a pretty wild story. So my, my dad migrates from Columbia to the United States when he's like 20 years old, can't speak a lick of English, doesn't have a high school uh, education. My mother comes from Cuba when she's 13 years old, 13, 14 years old. Again, well, she's just in the middle of high school, doesn't speak any English. My mother gets dumped right into high school. Okay. So she immediately starts learning the English language. My father starts uh, working as a dishwasher at a restaurant. So he starts learning English while he's working at the restaurant. So there's just like learn as you go. And my dad, like, has very, very strong work ethic. So whatever he puts his Did mind to. Did they both to, grow up Jehovah's Witness? No, that's where I'm getting to. That's okay. where I'm getting to, right? Neither one of them were Jehovah's Witnesses when they migrated over to the United States. So what happened was this is the, you know I'm going to try and keep this as you know because yeah. my mom's very sensitive about some of this stuff, but one of my my one of my aunts died in a car accident, okay, and they were just tormented by this tormented my 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 mother and they were Catholic so my 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 mother was Catholic on her side and so was my father both were Catholic, so on my mother's side daughter the the her sister passes in a car accident and they're just distraught. They're just completely like they've lost hope, that kind of a thing. Knock on the door. Jehovah's witness shows up, promises them everlasting life where they could actually in this, because her sister was not introduced to being a Jehovah's witness. She had hope of everlasting life. And all of a sudden they're like, Oh my God, we could see our, our, I could see my daughter again. We could see my sister again. Sign me up. Boom. They jump into the Jehovah's Witness, you know, strong sales pitch. My dad on the other side, my grandmother, another devout Catholic, right? Her favorites, my dad was like the black sheep. Okay. Like in today's standards, what, 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 like the way he was treated would have been probably considered child abuse. Um, the firstborn son was like, he was the smart one. He was in college, right? Mom had like huge, big dreams for him. Guess what? He decides to marry a girl that grandma doesn't approve of. She goes to church, starts praying, right? Catholic, right? Praying, rosary beads, the whole nine yards. Please, this is not right. You know, he can't marry her. Help me, blah, blah, blah. He ends up marrying her. She's like, well, Catholicism doesn't work. Yet another knock on the door, right? Promising of everlasting life. She's like, well, Catholicism doesn't work. So I'm moving from Columbia, taking what's left of my kids that I do love, taking them with me to the United States, okay, starting a whole new life. So this is basically what happened, right? They come to the United States, hope of a new life, right? And they're introduced to the Jehovah's Witness organization somewhere in the move. Okay. And so my parents are now Jehovah's Witnesses, right? Before they're my parents. And guess where they meet? Of course, as Jehovah's Witnesses. Gotcha. So, so you that's owe your how life that, to Jehovah's Witness. Dude, if it wasn't for Jehovah's Witnesses, I wouldn't be here. 
Right. So I got to give it, I mean, I got to give some Half of you would be with one person, half of you would be with uh, yeah, You know, there'd be a Y chromosome somewhere and an X chromosome <laughs> somewhere else. And, you know, <laughs> so that's basically how I, how I, how it came to be for them. Um, and then they got married and that's when the problem started. Okay. And at some point, at some point, my dad lost faith in the religion. So he left. But mind you, he felt so guilty about leaving that he gave all the religious responsibility to my mother because she stayed in. So when we would be like, hey, dad, if you're not going to meetings, can, can we like stay home with you? No, you're going to go with your mother. Okay? Right. Just whatever your mother says goes. So you're Jehovah's Witness, right? And we're like, well, that's not like, really? Like, yeah. It was a lot of do as I say, not as I do kind of a deal. I got it. In my home. Okay, so there's, there's the broad strokes. All right, so now in hearing your story, do you, do you qualify yourself? You say you're not religious today. You left completely. Would you consider yourself anti-religious? No, at all. You know, I, I, listen, I, as far as I'm not anti-anything, okay? I have my own belief systems. And I respect the beliefs of others. And one of the reasons why, and I want to really bring that home, okay? I respect the beliefs of everyone because I was, my beliefs were not respected my whole life. I was told what to believe, how to believe. And if I didn't believe them, that I was going to be punished or I was not going to inherit the earth or any number of things were going to happen to me if I didn't believe a certain way. And I made a decision that, well, I would rather take my chances going in that direction than having someone force a belief system upon me. So as far as anti-anything goes, I'm not anti-anything. I am just more of, here's what I believe, and I'd, rather, and I'd really rather not get involved in any kind of debates. This is just more like just to help people who are kind of stuck and they feel as though just because, and there was guilt. There was a tremendous amount of guilt. When I left at 18, it was this, this thought like, oh my God, like I'm on my own now. Like God is going to punish me. And you know, what happens if he catches me masturbating or what happens if I have sex before marriage or what happens? So you left, but drinking? the guilt didn't leave you completely. No, no. There was always this kind of ominous sort of like, you know, something's watching me kind of a deal. <laughs> right. Even even though I, I'd left and I wasn't coming back and I made the commitment, there was still almost like this looming sort of boogeyman that followed me. And that's what you call religious trauma. Absolutely. Absolutely. Interesting. So, you know, if you would have asked me a year or two ago if I still have religious guilt, and I, I want to qualify a little bit on in terms of like anti religious, I'm not at all. I don't think there's any reason to host a webinar on religious guilt if you're anti-religious, because then you just throw out the whole thing and you figure out how to get, get over it. It's more about, for me, maybe I can say some of organized religion is fairly challenging, right? And having leaders in that format could do human things and uh, use a tool as powerful as religion to impose a lot of abuse on others. But as a whole, my story is definitely reconnecting with Judaism. What I'm trying to do is reconnect without the guilt. And I, I put guilt and punishment kind of in the same, right? I feel guilty about something. And if you're guilty, or guilty of the crime, got to do the time, right? The punishment's coming. So 
if you would have asked me a year ago, I started this point a few times, I would have thought that I got rid of most of my religious guilt because I, you know, there was a lot of guilt around, I got a little beard today, but you know, <laughs> where, I, where I grew up, that was a big deal. That was a pretty big deal, the, the, the beard. And a lot of things, the yarmulke, the fill on every single, the different things, prayers and uh, giving charity and all these other things that we had to do in order to make sure we're okay. And for the most part, I thought I'd gotten rid of them. As a matter of fact, I'm not recommending this for anyone else, but I noticed in my early 20s that I have, are you familiar with tefillin? Have you heard this term? No. Tefillin? Tefillin are uh, what males over the age of 13 in the Jewish faith pray with. It's a black box oh. you put on your arm, you wrap it around your arm, and another black box on your head. I have seen that. You've seen those? I've seen it on the movie Orthodox. The okay. documentary, yes. the docu- or like the series, the series. Yeah, so, so men pray with this pretty much six days a week. Not okay. the Sabbath, but all days a week, you pray with this. And where I grew up, not only did we pray with it, but we also did door knocking. And we'd ask, yeah, some people call it phylacteries, the English word, but I think people probably have an easier time with filling than phylacteries. So um, we grew up as we would knock on doors, and if there was – a guy who answered say, hey, do you want to put on tefillin today? Or we go to businesses and things like that. And if it was a woman, say, hey, do you want to light the Sabbath candles? Right? So the tefillin were a pretty big deal. Yeah, I grew up Chabad. And in my early 20s, I realized that the days that I missed it, I felt guilty. And I said, I'm done. I'm just, I'm not putting these things on again until I get rid of the guilt. Now I put it on most days. I'd say on average, probably 28, uh, not 20, you don't do the Sabbath, but say 90, 95% of the days that one is meant to put it on, I put it on. But when I don't, today I have no guilt. Where for years, I I felt this guilt and I just said, hey, I don't want to connect in that way. So let me bring you to this year and some of our work, because if I've gotten over some of these things, then why the hell was it coming? Like, Why am I talking about religious guilt? And what I realized is how insidious it is and how many areas it starts just penetrating my belief system in ways that I don't even think of them as beliefs anymore. There are these facts that I have about the way the world works. See, I'm of the, I'm of the opinion that everyone has to look at their belief in God. Do they believe in God? What do they believe in God? Because it's not just God that we're investigating some abstract, abstract concept. It's what, how we think the world works. If there is a God, then so okay. Someone cares or Sometimes it's not someone cares in the sense that someone is present with me in my pain and on this journey of helping me get in a support system. He's right. He's this thing. What did you call it? The boogeyman behind you. Yeah. The boogeyman. Yeah. That was like this whole kind of, yeah, exactly. This ominous presence at, at, at early on in my life. It was not this loving, benevolent, 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 caring force that I believe in today, it was a very punishing, ominous, scary presence. Yeah. Or we could have a belief that God is non-existent, right? Which is another belief system that no one is present. And, you know, I don't want to say dog eat dog, but, you know, there are maybe some rules to the road, but it's not in the sense that there is an overall guiding or caring or moral um, moral concepts that exist, exist for everyone. Whatever those are, and in me, I kind of had this belief that 
I don't think God exists, but if he does, I hate him. That was probably the me of 10 years ago. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> yeah, I was pretty close, bro. I was, I was, you know, about between that 18 to 30 period was very similar. Pre-recovery. Yeah, pre-recovery. Pre-recovery. Yes. And then we come into recovery and it's, hey, we got to develop a relationship mm-hmm. with a higher power or we're out in the strip clubs for me. I mean, for you, you know, right. So it's like, okay, we got to look at these things and that's, you keep getting reminded, this is spiritual program. This is spiritual program. This is spiritual program. And that's where a lot of my ideas develop. But what I noticed a few months ago, and especially in our work together is that there are some areas where I really believe God wants to settle the score with me. Mm-hmm. Mistakes I've made from 15 years ago. And he's never going to forget <laughs> that this, like, this score has got to be settled. And you absolutely, absolutely must. And let me tell you the story that led to having this conversation. And um, I said, like, I got to put this out there because there are people struggling with this in a real way. So you and I were talking and having these conversations about this realizations that there was a belief system that I have to be punished. The score has to be settled. If I make a mistake, there isn't this compassionate, caring, loving being up there, which is, okay, I get it. Um, let's, let's work through it. And I'm not talking a mistake like a religious mistake. I didn't do my prayers, but let's say a mistake like um, I didn't treat someone properly, right? Which we, as, as we get into, everybody's like, okay, that's important. So I was like, okay, I want to treat someone properly. And recovery speak, we make amends and move on and we live our life. But the belief system that was still sitting in me was, no, that's not the way it works. Like this score has to be settled someday and the better things got the more my anxiety kicked up well think about the think about the idea of the score has to be settled so there's so much negativity tied around your belief systems all right it's payback it's punishment and it's very similar so i mean it's even when you said hey let's let's do this 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 discussion about religious guilt there's so many completely different religions completely different upbringings very similar uh, very similar trauma, very similar um, learned belief systems that we were, that somehow the score will be settled. And I felt that too. I felt when I left, when I was 18 years old, I go, I'm, well, I'm going to pay for this. At some point, you know, the, the, it's going to come due. The payment's going to come right. due. And, you know, am I willing to, am I willing to, to face up to those consequences? And, you know, and this is also a very important part of the of the conversation is that when you when you come to this point in your life where you make the conscious decision to say you know what let the chips fall where they may okay i'm walking away from this and i'm willing to take the consequences there's another voice that says well if we're going to go out let's go out strong brother <laughs> okay so then it's drugs and alcohol and gambling and prostitution and sex and i mean like you just Everything possible that say, okay, don't do this, right? Well, if I'm going out anyway, then I might as well just experience all these things that that eventually bring a tremendous amount of guilt and shame and you know self-loathing because it's you you reach this point where you want to rebel so strongly against what you were taught that you go completely the other way. And now instead of just feeling the guilt from leaving the religion, now you're feeling the guilt from all the bad choices and the consequences and the horrible things that you've, that you've done in your life. 
You know, when I think about like you were talking about your beard <laughs> in the religion where I grew up, you weren't allowed to grow a beard. You weren't allowed to. No, you had to be clean shaven. Okay. And so, and obviously there was no tattoos allowed. So, you know, if you're looking at my arms, this Damn, is almost, yeah, this is almost <laughs> like a representation of guess what? Right. I'm out. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and this is, and, it, and it's a, it's like symbolism. It, it is actual symbolism of, of me saying that I want no part of this. I'm trying to find my way. There's all this kind of guilt and shame just kind of like wafting along. And just so just to make sure that I don't accidentally lose my mind somewhere along the way and go, okay, I'm going to come back now. Well, it's kind of tough now. Right. So it's, it's, it's really, it's kind of like, and, and there's this, okay, there's a question here. Okay. So do you believe in God? If yes, how do you define your relationship with the divine? How do you differentiate between God and religion? So great question. Another fabulous question. And I think we were kind of moving in that direction. For me, the God that I was raised with was a very punishing God that kept score. So I want nothing to do with, with, with that God. And so when I walked away at 18, I also I walked away from religion, I walked away from God, and I walked away from spirituality, which was probably the most painful thing. I didn't realize it at the time. But cutting myself off, disconnecting from spirituality was later on one of the most painful and difficult things of my life. And so as I was telling, you know, like my journey of Siddhartha, if you guys have ever read the book Siddhartha, it's the story of Buddha, right? Um, if you, that was when I remember reading that book going, oh my God, that's my story. I live my parents. I want nothing to do with what they have. I'm going to go it alone, discover my life's journey, um, walk away from God, walk away from all of that. And just go it alone and making all these dishor these decisions, right? Where sure, there's plenty of moments where when you're living in that almost hedonistic Sodom and Gomorrah secular type lifestyle, it's very appealing and it was a lot of fun. I did, I mean, I'm not gonna lie, it was but then at some point it consumes you. Right. It it sucks you in, you lose control. And that's what happened. My with sponsor me. says you stopped doing it because you, um, you you stopped doing it because you want to do it. Right? You start doing it because it wants you to do it. It's, right. It just takes perfect. It. That's a. He perfect, doesn't use those words, but that point. It's a perfect definition. So what happened to me was, um, I was about thirty-one years old. I was living in Costa Rica. I was heavily addicted to cocaine and alcohol and just just about everything else. And one night. I thought I was going to have a heart attack. My heart was beating out of my chest and I couldn't stop. I was in the shower, taking cold showers. I would come out of the shower, try and dry off. And I kept getting out of the shower. I go, I can't dry off. I can't get the water off me. I realized it was sweat. I couldn't stop sweating. I was sweating so profusely. Then I started guzzling alcohol down. I started popping Tylenol PM and Valiums. And then all of a sudden it, it kind of dawned on me that, oh my God, I might have done too many drugs. And I was probably 30, I would say maybe 31 years old. It's about 31 years old. Yeah, but 31 years old. I had left when I was 18 years old. And I got down on my knees for the first time in, and we're talking 15 years. I got down on my knees and I said, I don't, I, 
I said, God, if you're there, I don't know who you are or what you are, but I can't, I, I can't do this anymore. I just, just take me out of this world or help me get clean and sober because I, I can't do this. And I didn't die, obviously. What, what was that that you were praying to, right? Because you had rejected I, strongly. Yeah. You, well, that was why. That up. was why when I got on my hands and knees, and remember, I am at, I am on all kinds of drugs, so I'm not c- thinking clearly. Right. And as a matter of fact, I don't tell this part of the story as often that often anymore. But behind my bar, because there was a bar inside my house at the time, we rented this house, and where I put the bar was there was a carving of the Last Supper of the last of of Jesus Supper, Christ's yeah. Last Supper inside the wall. So it wasn't like you could take it off. <laughs> so I just decided to make that the backdrop to my bar, right? Like sacrilege kind of a thing, right? I got you. And so, so you were definitely anti-religious at a time. I was, I was anti-religious at a time and anti-God, anti-God. Okay. Yeah. So I got on my knees and I said, I don't know who you are or what you are. I don't even know if you're there, whatever the case may be, but I can't do this anymore. So if you are there, like I'm ready to just, I'm ready to go. Right, like it was more of this idea of like death was a lot more inviting than to continue trying to trying to live because I wasn't living anymore. I was I think I was waiting to die, and so I'm staring at this carving of the Last Supper while I'm praying, just kind of hoping that I connect with something. And then I black out, right? And the next morning I wake up, and the only thing that I remember, the only thing that came to my mind in that moment was the therapist that I'd gone to see 10 months earlier who said, I can't help you because I went to go see a therapist. He says, man, I'd love to help you. But the only thing I've seen work with drug addicts, and he said that to me, is 12 steps. You didn't consider yourself a drug addict at the time. No. And I said, but I'm not a drug addict. You know, For me, a drug addict was an IV user. So again, yeah. it's, a, it's language is so important. Language is huge. Okay. Guilt, everything that we feel guilt and shame is all, it's just language. We've just chosen to believe a certain language. And so I wake up and I see that vision of him and boom, I get in my car and I drive straight to his office and I get to his office and I said, listen, I need help. I didn't know if he was going to be there. I didn't call or anything. I didn't do any drugs that morning. I didn't drink anything. Gift of desperation. Gift of desperation. I get there and he says, I'm so glad you're here. Here's the directions. It starts in one hour. And there's only one meeting a day in English in Costa Rica at that time. It starts in an hour. Things started clicking. It was like, maybe, maybe. Sure does starting to feel like it. Like there's something greater than me at work here because I surrendered. And so it didn't, it didn't click right away, but within that first year of my sobriety, there was an an undeniable presence of God in my life that from that moment on, I would know, I would, from that moment on, I became um, a spiritual being that had a, very, uh, very close and connected relationship with the God of my understanding. Well, so let, so let me ask you this question. Let me ask you this question. Go ahead. Um, b- before I get to the question, I'm going to make a note. Uh, before I get to the question, I want to say what le- I want to finish the story of what led me to 
want to host this um, yeah, 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 yeah. This webinar. I'm just going to make a note of it so I don't forget. All right, so while we were having the conversations uh, about punishment and seeing how some of the beliefs were playing in my head, I started, you know, like you said, like a higher power, like things just start happening in real life that seem to be connected to what's going on in my, you know, internally. Yes. And I get a call from someone who I'd been introduced to several weeks before. She was struggling with different issues and the person who introduced us thought I can, thought I can help. Anyway, so I'm having these conversations. I had this one conversation with her. Just overall, she was, I, I know I need to work on myself. I know I need to do things. Um, can you guide me in terms of what direction this person, what direction could work to, to work on myself? I had gone to a couple therapy sessions, but I'm smarter than the therapist that I've gone to. So what do you recommend I, I do? And we had a broad conversation, and I focused mostly on being humble enough to take directions, not looking for the someone who's you know, you, you don't go to a doctor um, for, for anything, right? And say, like, are you smarter than me in all areas of life before you let them put stitches on your finger? I mean, it's just, it's suddenly in this area of therapy. So we had some conversation around that. And I said, what I found work is to be humble, to be open, and to be willing to do whatever it takes. And I can tell you some of the whatever it takes meant for me, right? It did mean re- recovery, 12 steps. It meant therapy. It meant a lot of different modalities. It meant... Uh, having a regular uh, prayer, spirit, um, meditation. I always have a, a coach, a therapist, a sponsor in my corner, someone I don't go through life completely alone, but different people find different things. The point is, is that if those didn't work for me, I wouldn't have stopped there. And I think, and that's where the conversation left. Three weeks later, she calls me up. Uh, she's, uh, I wasn't able to answer the phone. I get a text message saying, I'm in the ER, would love to be able to talk to you now. So I finish what I'm doing. I call her back and she says, uh, well, the reason I'm in the ER is because I feel like I'm like coming out of my body. They, they tell me it's a panic attack. And they said, if I want, I could check myself in to the psych ward. But if I understood correctly, what she was asking, what she was saying was that once I sign, I sign. Right? I, I can choose whether or not I admit myself. But once I admit myself, then I'm completely under their care and direction. So she was asking me, do you think I should check myself in, which is not exactly, you know, a responsibility I wanted to take. But I said, can you just talk to me more about what's going on? What is the panic about? And as we spoke, it became very clear that she believed that because of some sexual sins from when she was younger and I think bullying someone in school, that these two things destined her to... um, punishment. Mm -hmm. And there was nothing she can do to avoid it. And there was, um, no redemption. Right. There was zero redemption. Yeah. Nothing. And now is the time here, here, here it's coming. And I said to, I said to her, she was of the Jewish, Jewish faith. And I said to her, but, um, if someone owed you a punishment, they've already taken care of that. I mean, you've had a hell of a life, (laughs) right? is, yeah, but you don't understand what I did. The bullying was really bad and everything else. I said, well, you've told me some of your story the last time we spoke and your parents were psychologically, physically, emotionally abusive to you. So you started being punished based on your version of that. If this is a punishment, then this punishment started when you were four or five, what you remember probably sooner. 
And I couldn't believe the response I got. The response I got was that maybe she is being punished for the sins that a former, um, like her soul was in someone else's body committing sins. And now it's, she's taken on the soul and the punishments from the last soul. And I, I hung up the, not important where the conversation went, but I hung up the phone call and I was like, that is like, that is a little bit of what I'm dealing with, right? The religious guilt, the punishment and everything else. If you want to magnify it, you know, snowball down the hill, this is what turns into someone in a psych ward. And I felt like, I want to say for no other reason, but the primary driver of this anxiety was a deeply held belief that someone was settling the score and it was happening now. And I said, I got to talk about this. I, I must talk about this. So now my question for you is this, you're 32 years old, you're on your knees, you're all sorts of drugs. We know where that leads a lot of people if they don't end up in recovery. Right. What, what do they say? Death, institutions, death, institutions and death, jails, jails, institutions and death and death. Right. So and I think we've all we all know a lot of people who've died from drugs and you were 30 years old doing a lot of drugs. You end up on the floor um, and just this this belief that there is a higher power that could help you. Right. You you're you're getting on your knees to someone. And then when you go to a therapist and you go into the meetings, you start to connect. Oh my goodness. There's a higher power that's guiding. Something's us. guiding me. So, okay. So now the, the million dollar question did growing up Jehovah's witness and having that religious upbringing, did that help that on the knees moment because you had the background of religious belief or did it delay it by 15 years? It delayed it by 15 years. No question about it. So when where would you on, have got that from? How would you have known God existed if you didn't grow up with it was in It was an involuntary action. And again, it was the Last Supper, which in Jehovah's Witnesses, okay, that, that Last Supper carving is something that is that you'll see in Catholicism, but you won't see so much in, and you might see it in, and I'm not sure. I'm not sure if the Last Supper is something that is, um, observed in Christian and Catholics, but in the Jehovah's Witness face, you wouldn't see a Last Supper in anybody's home. Okay, it was it was almost like a depiction, traditional depiction of Jesus and the disciples. And anyway, bottom line was, but so, but I'm not clear because you seem to be saying the opposite thing. So if what triggered it was a Last Supper, then what triggered it was being steeped in religious belief. Yeah, but. In no way, shape, or form, and that's, I guess, in no way, shape, or form did my influence of Jehovah's Witness come in at that moment. It wasn't, it wasn't me going, oh, I need to go backwards. It was, I don't know what you are or who you are. I still was not in this. There, there certainly wasn't, even though I was high as a kite, Okay, there was never anything in there that was a correlation to the Jehovah's Witness faith. There was a some sort of, there is this thing that has a religious connotation that also has a God connotation to it. And right now, I'm desperate. So whatever you are, however you are, whatever's going on, please help me. And like I said, the next morning, that's what, that's what appeared. And so I just allowed whatever was happening to guide me without any sort of specific religious. And I'll just, let, let me just reinforce this again. 
it was there was never anything where I need to go to church. It was I need to get to the therapist who told me to go to 12 steps. It wasn't anything about, okay, you need to go and get to the nearest Jehovah's Witness uh, Kingdom Hall. You need to get to the nearest Catholic church. You need to know it was go to see that therapist and get to a 12 step meeting. That was the message. That was the message for my so, so if higher I power. Exactly what, what, what you're saying is, is that whatever happened at that moment is something that's innate to us as human beings where we could connect to that. Yes, to source. To some, right, to something that's. To divinity. And nothing to do with religion. And we will just know that, right? The same way Abraham wasn't raised with it, right? I, listen, Abraham found God as a child. I think you're saying we can all do that. I think the. I think there's no perfect example of a guy who has just finished consuming God knows how many quantities of cocaine, okay, who's popping Vicodin, Tylenol PM, guzzling tons of alcohol and smoking weed and has a spiritual experience. <laughs> I mean, come on. A religious experience. A religious a, experience. A spiritual experience because in that particular moment, I was praying to God. Right. In whatever I was – in other words, I was bypassing – any sort of filter and was going straight to the man. Okay. I didn't get on my knees and go, Oh, by the power of the Jehovah of the religious Jehovah's witnesses or, you know, the Catholicism or I didn't put on a yarmulke. Okay. I went straight to the man and I said, God, if you're there, if you're listening, please help me. And he said, go to a 12 step meeting. So I went to a 12-step meeting. And then my sponsor says to me at some point, are you willing to go to any length? I said, yes. And he says, do you know what that means? I said, no. And he says, are you willing to let God into your life? Up until that moment, there were so many things that had been like guiding me up into that point, into that moment where I'm in a 12-step meeting with a bunch of recovering drug addicts. And some guy tells me, are you willing to let God into your life? And I said, buddy, I, I, I have been gifted with the gift of desperation. I am willing to do whatever it takes. So, yes, I'm willing to let God into my life in that moment. But nowhere so in when there. You said that, when, when you said that, did you know that that God was different than the God that you left at 18? No, no. I had no idea who that God was. So there was still some of that when I said yes to it. There was a still a little fake it till you make it kind of a deal. Or it was like, I knew there was a little part of me that's like, hey, dude, just watch this guy because he's have, talking have a lot of Have you ever struggled gun. with the what if they're right? Yeah, but that was, that was very early on when I first left. So somewhere in my early 20s, there was a tremendous amount of, oh, my God, what if they're right? What if, what if you know? You know, what if I'm doomed to everlasting? And and then here's the cool thing about being a Jehovah's Witness is that there is no hellfire and brimstone. There's no, there's, there's no fiery hell. There is only when you die, ashes to ashes and dust to dust. So the only consequences was I, I go back to being dust, right? So I didn't really feel like any severe consequences like other than, and then there was this other thought. Okay, let me get this straight. So the deal is if I stay a Jehovah's Witness, because this is was always the pull. So mm -hmm. imagine some guilt. 
So I have my daughter. And at some point, I had already left the religion. Now I'm clean and sober. And I'm very, I'm very spiritual. So I'm very mindful and very respectful of everyone I come in contact with. I start spending more time with my mother. And her friends in the religious organization start to notice that I'm talking different and acting differently. So guess what happens? Why don't you come join us, brother? Why don't you come back to one of the meetings? And I mean, all of a sudden, like, like this, 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 I could feel myself transforming. And I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute, hold the phone. Just because I'm being mindful and respectful of your practices in no way, shape, or form means I want anything to do with you. And they're like, well, Omar, you know, now that you have found the light or you can see your way, you know, I mean, you know, don't you feel like you'd want everlasting life? And I just remember thinking, hold on, let me just, uh, real quick, who's going to be left here after, you know, like Armageddon and all that kind of stuff? Well, it's just the Jehovah's Witnesses. So let me get this straight. I get to spend eternity with Jehovah's Witnesses? Yes. Okay, well, I'm out. All right, like dust to dust, I'll take the dust. Like, I'm not spending an eternity with this. Are you out of your mind? And of course, they took a step back because it was like, okay, I don't know where to go from here. Like, he's real, he'd rather die. You know what they did? Then they looped my daughter in. Don't you feel your daughter deserves an opportunity for everlasting life? And then the, like, the, the, the talons came out. And I lost it, right? I made it very, very clear that there was no way I was ever going to put my daughter through the torment and the torture of a childhood anywhere even remotely similar to the childhood I had, right? And they needed to stay away from her, okay? And so that was kind of like my whole thing was like I recognized that their whole philosophy and their whole way of getting people to follow along in this practice or in this worship is to constantly be applying guilt. Well, you know, I don't know about this. Well, you know what the Bible says, you know, and you know, God's watching. And, you know, if you do this, you know, this is going to happen. Like, can you imagine just so year the room, after year after so, year? So where's the room for religion without guilt in your, in, in, your my, in, in my In my humble non-religious um, opinion, it's all personal. Like, for example, I have no problem practicing and having a relationship with God through the 12-step fellowship. I would recognize God with all the readings are riddled with the word God in them. We would do the Lord's Prayer, you know, where it's attached to different religious organizations, I tied it directly into 12 steps. So I adopted it for me. I remember when my sponsor had the step two conversation with me and he says, you know, you know, uh, came to believe in a power greater than myself would restore me to sanity. And then uh, third step is, um, what is it? Surrender. Made it, made it, turn your will in your life. Uh, to the care of God, as as you understood him. And at that point is when I said, this is where kind of I'm struggling with. Like, eh, I don't know about it. He goes, well, tell me if you could pick a God of your understanding, what qualities would he have? I say, well, he would be loving and 
generous and forgiving and caring and watchful. He says, okay, well, that's your God. And I go, anyway, wait a minute, that's kind of ridiculous. You know, like I can choose because that's, that's the thing about 12 steps. It's the God of your understanding. And if that's, tell me about your experience so far with the God of your understanding. How has he been along this journey? I go, buddy, I, I, I got to tell you, he's been, I've, I have felt his presence ever since I prayed for death that day. And I have not stopped feeling his presence. And do you feel like he was punishing you or judging you in any way? I'm like, dude, if he was, I mean, if anyone deserved to be punished, right? Like he goes, right. Follow your internal guidance system. What's it telling you? Telling you that God loves you. And he's just here to make sure that you are moving in the right direction. That's it. He's here to guide you and help you and love you and protect you. I have never since that moment, and I remember where it was, okay? We're talking about 17 years ago at Outback Steakhouse in Costa Rica Mm -hmm. in the Itzkazu Mall, sitting in one of the booths, having a conversation. And from that moment on, I remember thinking, thank you, God. Thank you. Thank you, God. And it's been that way since. It's never changed. My reverence and my love and my connection and my ability to pray and meditate and connect has never changed. It's been unwavering ever since. So is is that God at all compatible with religion in your mind? Ellie, I know you're trying to rope me into this whole religious pull, but I got to tell you, man, I can't speak to that because I don't know. Got it. Right, like how you you give us your opinion because you're still a practicing Jew, so to a degree, yeah. Okay, well, how did you how did you acclimate? And there's a ton of questions. Should we answer some of these first? Let's look at some of the questions. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Deborah had the first one, so we should start with hers. There's a difference between guilt and shame. Do you believe that there's a healthy guilt, which is when we act our true values, or shame, that is belief about our unworthiness of self? So, um. This is getting to a different conversation about the difference between guilt and shame in general, but I was actually going to ask a question like this, and hopefully it's close enough to what uh, Dvorah is asking that it, that it answers it. So in, in our work together, we've all, you know, every time something comes up, you're like, okay, that's good, right? That's a good thing. And where's the good in that? Where's the lesson? Where's the learning, right? God created everything. He created that too. And that too is for the good. Yes. Okay, so what is the good in religious guilt? Okay, but now it's mm-hmm. two entirely different. And I hear you. I hear you. For me, there's nothing good in religious guilt. Okay. As far as the actual guilt and shame, which is Deborah's re- referring to, guilt is the idea that I did something wrong. Shame is the idea that there's something wrong with me, right? Inherently wrong, right? And so... I do believe, this is part of my own belief system, guilt and shame, just like everything, are here for a reason. Now, what would happen if I didn't feel guilt, shame, remorse, angst, embarrassment for some of the things that I've done? Like that in itself is the punishment, okay? If I were to walk around, if, if let me put it to you this way, right? I'm about, I'm about uh, I, I would say about 15 pounds overweight, 
Okay. Like I've got no business really walking around with my shirt off. Okay. In public. Right. Unless I'm at the beach. Right. And then it, uh, you know, all's fair. But if I were to walk into like a party or whatever with my shirt off and my daughter was there. Okay. It would, it would be like, what are you doing? Right. She would be embarrassed. I would be embarrassed. And then at some point she would be like, dad, why would you come into this party with your shirt off with that belly of yours? What were you thinking? And I know how I would feel. I would feel ashamed of myself. I would feel guilty for hurting her. Right. And I'd probably feel some shame that somewhere in there, I would look at myself and go, Omar, seriously, what is wrong with you? How, how could you, what, why would make you think that you just walk in here? Like you're this, like, like you're the rock. Okay, that's one thing. If I'm got a six, so I, I, what you're trying to say, right? What you're trying to you say, what I'm, I'm trying to say is there's that, a natural consequence. To yes, things. yes, yes. I, there's no such thing as punishment. There's no such thing as punishment. These emotions are designed to keep us to give us guidelines. And if I don't, so you're saying there is no format because what what are things that I've wondered about? Um, you know, like I've in my experience, like my own experience, religious guilt is horrific, and I agree with you. A hundred percent that it delayed the um, the it the delayed me the connection for fifteen years that I eventually yes. found with with a higher power, and I had all of the religious guilt. I grew up with tons and tons. You know, you talk about being in a Jehovah's Witness around other people and told not to mix. I didn't even get that option. I was only around. I was in a school that was all like go. me, and like mm-hmm. everyone every, everyone was the same. There was you're on the inside looking in. There's nowhere to go. So in that format, with all of the messages from all of the wonderful rabbis and leaders and parents and books and everything there, uh, I was depressed, anxious, unhappy, angry, pissed off, um, watching a shit ton of porn. And there was just nothing, not was nothing good, but I wasn't in a good place. And then fast forward a bunch of years, I scrap all of that. I think the same as you do, that if I throw out religion, I got to throw out spirituality. So I hate God. I'm averse to the word. It isn't until I'm uh, not on my knees physically, but on my knees, you know, in that way. I like to say that the door to recovery is this high. You know, it's like two feet high. You got to come in like, <laughs> got to come in on your hands and knees just to get in, right? No one's walking in and say, hey. I was planning on going to a bar, but I saw this meeting, you know, let me, let me check this out instead. You know? So everyone's coming in in that way, like completely, completely broken. And in that mode, the same thing. I said, okay, I'm going to do step one. And I saw that step three had the word God in it. And I was, I'm not going to think about mm-hmm. it. I'm absolutely not going to think about it until, until I get there. And slowly in recovery, I develop a relationship with a higher power that I found that I need to shed some of that own skin, that old skin of the guilt, shame, punishment, all the crap associated with it in order to have any semblance of a true relationship. And every time I find that there's still some of that old belief system, it actually hinders me from this, yeah. from having that connection and having that relationship and not just a relationship for the relationship's sake, but I also find myself in these settings that I'm less anxious, I'm less depressed. I'm more useful to society. I'm a better husband. I'm a better father. I'm a better person. And on and on the list goes. Like there was nothing good for me about the religious guilt. But I guess where I'm getting to 
is, is the religious guilt good for some? And I don't know the answer to this. Meaning, is the religious guilt, was it toxic for you? If you're going to give me a, a blanket statement would be no. Not good for anyone. Not good for anyone. Not good for anything. So why is there so much of it? That's control. Do what do you mean? What, religion, school, or anything that ha- anything institutionalized. Okay, the educational system, the political system, the religious system, even the twelve-step system. Okay, there there has to be some semblance of control. And how do you control people? You make them feel guilty if they don't do what you know. If they come in and they benefit, if you benefit in any way, shape, or form from whatever it is that you're participating in, and you don't do exactly as is prescribed in the literature, then a healthy dose of guilt and shame is applied in order to get you back in line. Okay. And like, even like Devorah was saying, you know, is there healthy, is there healthy guilt against our true values? Absolutely. I think that when, when, when you are, when you are aligned with your own values, you know what your values are and you go against your own values, you're going to feel some, an emotional backlash to that. And I, and there's no question that guilt is one of those. And even as, and I'm going to real quickly, def- what Fred was saying here, how do you define a spiritual death? I defined me 17 years ago when I was praying for death. To me, now, many years later, I came to this in a meditation. It came to me that what had happened to me in that moment was when I, pr- I actually did, I said, God, take me out of this world or help me stay clean. And I believe in that moment, God said, okay, it's time for that version of Omar to die. And this new version of Omar oh, interesting. to be reborn. And that's why that version of Omar woke up the next day and had a different thought. It wasn't, I need to get some more dope because of this hangover. It was, I need to get to one of those 12-step meetings. And now when I think back to it, Everything from that moment on has been divinely guided. I believe that intrinsically. I believe it with every fiber of my being. And I believe also that this journey that we're on from the moment we're born, all right, until the moment that we die, it's a journey of self-discovery. It's a, it's a journey back to God, back to spirituality, back to truth. Okay. As far as I'm concerned, education, formal education is not truth. Religion is not truth. 12 steps is not truth. There is an instinctual, there is an, there is an intuitive voice, a spiritual connection that exists within each and every one of us. And within the practice of meditation, in the practice of breathing exercises, in the practice of journaling, surfaces this spirituality, this oneness with creation, with God, with Mother Nature, with all. It's oneness. It's unity. And that is really, that's really, for me, the journey was detaching myself from, guys, sorry to to break your bubble, but everything that you believe in is words. It's written in this book. It says here in these words, by this man here, that this is this and this is that, and if you don't do this, this is wrong. And no one is saying Have you sat? Have you sat in quietude? Have you spent time with the divine and asked the important questions? God, what am I here to do? 
What so is I think my what purpose? you're saying is what I hear you saying is that this spirituality exists in every one of us. We don't need to be trained yes. how to do it. Correct. And we it, it helps. It helps. I was taught to meditate. I was, you know. Go ahead. Sure. Yeah. Once you're started on the path and you can yeah. find guides that can help. And yeah. that's actually where I think this is what I found about this is what I think about religion in, in terms of that. How how it connects with it. So here's one thing I'll say before I go into that is that the the God of my religion, right? Not the God of my I'm not saying the Jewish God. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that the one that I left for I left my childhood believing in. And understand that's not the same one that everyone left their child believing in. It depended on my parents. It depended on my specific teachers, my community, and on and on and on. So someone could have been born in the same family in a little bit of a different time frame and heard different messages and has a different belief. But the one that I got, I left my childhood with, that the definition of God that was in my mind, I know I have to smash this an idol. It's BS. It's not real. And I have to smash it completely. And to, and the one that I've begun to find in recovery, I know is a lot more um, real to me. And there is a click. It's something that feels right. And when I have a contradiction, I always go to the one in recovery first. So what I mean when I have a contradiction is that I have come closer to, the, to my Jewish faith. I, I do put on the tefillin almost every every day today. I do... I feel Judaism is part of my identity. I do learn a lot of the Jewish texts, but if I'm faced with a contradiction, I always say that recovery has gotten me to a better place than, uh, than the Judaism I grew up with. And if I have to make the pieces match, I start first with recovery and then I match, I, I, I match um, Judaism into that. So for example, in recovery, there is no room for a punishing God. We can't believe in step three and believe in a punishing God. It's just not, we made a decision to turn our will and our life over to the care of God. If God is punishing me and settling the score, there's no care for me to, that, that, that's not a caring person. I would never, I wouldn't describe anyone. Omar really cares about me. You know, he's 15 years later, he finds out I did something wrong and he's, you know. <laughs> and I love using that. And, I, and, I, and when does he pick? He picks the time when I'm doing the best. Right. He doesn't get like, like, oh, no, don't do it there. Because that's when my anxiety always came. It's like, things are doing well. It's like, oh, it can't do well for too long. You got that thing from 15 years ago, and the score has got to be settled. So God's coming to settle that score. So that's on the outset is that reco- the, the recovery is kind of my foundation for spirituality. At the same point in time, I found within Judaism that there are a lot of beautiful things that exist. And for whatever reason, they've been corrupted. And I think the same thing happens in certain meetings and certain 12 steps. So I'll give you an example of that. So um, I, I have a friend who's recently come to terms with um, the death of a loved one, right? That it's really affected him. He thought, okay, it happened. I mourned. Who's religious? I mourned. I did the seven day Shiva. I did the 30 day this. I did the 11, 11 month Kaddish, right? Different periods of time that we're instructed to mourn. And as it happens, uh, he's realized that he hasn't. And there still is a lot of trauma and pain that exists from the loss he suffered many years ago that needs to be resolved. And in talking to him, um, he's, like, what, he's like, what do I need to do to get over this? What do I need to do to get over this? And I said, it, it's, I, I don't know this specifically. Like, I don't know this. You know, I haven't lost a, I haven't lost a loved one. 
But I believe, and from what I understand and from hearing a lot of different people talk, pain is pain. And with pain, we need to be willing to feel it. And when we run from it, distract from it, deny it, avoid it, escape it, it somehow turns into this cancerous resists, thing. That consumes- what we resist persists. Yeah, especially deny, because half the time it's denying. No, it's not a big deal. It happened a long time ago. And he said, okay, so what's going to happen afterwards? And I said, listen, I can tell you, for example, with my abuse, the sexual abuse, when I was willing to really go into the true pain of it, the true pain, not the, this guy's a monster, this guy's a bad person, the true pain of being able to look at the world through the eyes of an eight-year-old who thought it was a better idea to get sexually abused on a regular basis than it was to tell anyone about it, that that deal was good for him. And that's not me crying victim. That's not me anything. It's just going back in time to holy hell. There was an eight-year-old kid who made this deal and he thought it was a good one. How sad is that? And when I'm willing to truly sit there in stillness and quietude and feel that sadness, something happens. I don't know if it's the healing power of grieving. I don't know if it's that's where the higher power, where God comforts you. I have no idea what happens, but something happens in that moment. I mean, in those moments that seem to just allow it to wash over us if we're willing to feel it. So what I told him was, I said, when, when, um, when your loved one died, how many people came to you during your shiva? How many people read there's a certain um, script that's read to those people? All of these things were meant, some, someone who was smart put this in place, I have no doubt. And he said, for seven days, we're going to mourn. And we're going to say these blessings. We're going to sit around in this format and we're not going to be distracted and we're going to rip our clothes and it's doing these things. But why? What is the, what, meaning, what is the meaning behind those, those rituals versus what is the ritual? And what I find, find a lot as I left and came back is half the times we're more concerned with, oh, what, what did he say to do? Oh, he said these words. Oh, did I pronounce it correctly? Did I say it loud enough for me to hear? Is, is it okay if I missed it? I'm just like, no, this was a prescription meant in order to help people who are mourning feel their grief so that they don't carry the pain for 20 years. That was the idea. But instead, we focus on all of the, say, all of the body and none of the soul. Right. Right. And I which think is, that... It, which, is, which, which is a perfect um, segue into this question here by Sora, uh, which is perhaps guilt is the wrong word for this question, but is there not a place in religion where feeling guilty, guilt guides you, uh, keeps you connected. And then the second one was, for many, religion creates a sense of belonging and community. How do you think having the belonging community of the recovery... Uh, I'm, I'm reading this wrong. But basically, uh, I guess it's referencing having being connected to uh, the recovery So community. I guess what you're saying is like this. It's saying re- religion definitely gives a sense of community. Yes. So does recovery. Okay, so let me, let me just... I want to answer this. You answer this after. But... This whole idea of like how I answered that before, I think guilt and shame and anxiety and overwhelm and fear and all of these negative emotions are guides, are our are, are, are guidance system, right? If I, if I do something that is embarrassing, right, it's there for a reason. It's going, don't do that again. That's embarrassing. Or if I do something wrong, I come over to somebody's house, right, and I say something I shouldn't say or I eat something I shouldn't see or I do something to offend someone right? There's that sense of guilt. Oh man. Wow, man. My goodness. I'm wow. I I really apologize. I shouldn't have done that. However the case may be, I think removing anything from the guilt 
educational guilt, religious guilt, political guilt, any sort of a, it kind of, and it almost adds on to it. It's almost like it's not necessary. Guilt itself and shame itself is its own punishment. It's its own guidance system. And I don't like to use the word punishment so much. I like to use it more like here's this negative emotion that surfaces when I do something that goes against my own values. So when I go against my own values, there's these feelings that come up that are associated that remind me, hey, man, you know what? Let's try not to do that again. And I believe that that's as far as that goes. I don't feel like I need to attach religious guilt. I feel as though, and just like the sense of community, like I was able to connect with a higher power, God, because I, God of my understanding, through 12 steps. If someone connects through it, like, for example, Ellie now is, you know, Jewish again, right? Or, you know, oh, so Jewish, but yeah. you know, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but in other words, the God of my understanding, the Jewish of my understanding. And I think that if we're all able to walk into any situation, like for me, I would tell people who would say, dude, I can't do the 12 steps, this whole God thing. And it's like uh, all the things that they're saying, and I can't go along with everything. And I said, listen, man, this has helped millions of people struggling with drugs and alcohol. Just take what you need and leave the rest, man. And I firmly believe that all of all of the religions, all the 12 steps, even the educational institutions, there's, there's, a, there's a foundation. There's a foundational structure as a guideline. You know, thou shall not steal, that shall not kill, that shall not covet his neighbor's wife. That, there's all these like basic moral code. Like there's just basic moral code that if you follow this, all right, you're going to live a, a more fulfilling life, a happy life. And if right? you don't. And if you don't, you're going to feel guilty about it because you did something wrong, but it has what nothing to do. It has nothing to do with, yeah, it has nothing to do with religion and it has to do with your own moral code that lives again. We go back to within. Where's the guilt coming from? Is it coming externally? No, guilt, shame, remorse, anger, fear, overwhelm. That is not an external thing. It's not applied after the fact. It is an internal emotional state, which means everything comes within. So I get this language that gets presented to me, and I have a decision to make. Do I choose to believe this information blindly and accept it as is, or do I have the opportunity to challenge it? And as a child, I did not have an opportunity to challenge it. I had to accept it as is, or I was going to pay for it there was going to be a day of reckoning. No, thank you. I'll take the reckoning. So I, have, I, have, I have a couple different theories. I mean, there's some that are more the malicious theories, right? Which is kind of control. Right? People want control. It is control. better tool than control someone with God. Yeah. That's one. Another, which is more gentle, is, okay, if you're trying to explain something to a three, four, five, or 10-year-old, right? You're not going to say that, hey, like, let, me, let me sit down and explain to you why in fourth grade right? You should do things that are really valuable to you. Because as you get older, right, statistics type, better education, you're going to make more money, you're going to live in safer areas, you're going to, you're going to be able to send your kids to better schools. Like, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? Like, I, I want to play outside. It's just like, okay, you know what? Do your homework, get a good grade on the score. And I'll let you play outside, but I'm going to get you a bike for it. 
right? And that's going to be a reward. And right. on the other hand, if you don't do that, it's going to be a punishment. You'll be grounded right. for a week, right? And that's the way we teach kids because it's just a very simple way for kids to understand. And it's I kind of a that, blanket. That's kind of a blanket how we teach our kids. I think. <laughs> okay, I hear you, but I'm saying it's fair enough. Fair enough, but it's it's something that. Okay, not everyone does that. Correct. Okay, like some, let's just say some. <laughs> I think it's fairly uniform that there's some sort of reward and punishment system with kids. Yeah, I, 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 I've tried not to do that consciously. Conscious, and I, here's the good. Here, I've consciously tried not to do that because of my upbringing. Continue. I hear you. I hear you. But I, I think there's also, I don't want to say some room for it, but there's, there's some way that we have to explain things, right? You tell your kids they have a bedtime. Right. There's something and maybe that's order. I think that's more like order versus, you know, if you go to bed on time, then I'm going to give you, you know, pancakes in the morning. And if you don't, okay, I hear you, then, right, you know, it. you're going to sleep in the closet for a week. I, I hear it. The, 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 it, um, it won't distract from the overall point. What you're saying won't distract from the overall points. I won't focus on it. However, it is someone communicates information to a child. It's different than the way one communicates and influences the behavior of an adult. For whatever reason, with God, we kind of stop short, right? And we don't reapproach that. For most of us, we don't reapproach that again as we get older. So we teach a three-year-old, four-year-old, five-year-old, a five, a three, four, or five-year-old version of God, and then we kind of stop there. And then when they're twenty, we don't say, "Okay, here's God for college graduates." Like, let, let me give you a completely different. I know it's slightly different than that, but we're also not giving you a bedtime anymore. We're not giving you allowance. Like life is a little different now. And let me talk to you about a higher power that I think now you can, you know, you can get your head around. It won't work so well at six or seven, but at 20 years old, you can tell someone, Hey, you eat bad food. You getting fat. That's not a punishment, right? That's just, that's consequence. Someone came in to punish you. It's, Right, you eat good food. You go to the gym. You didn't get a reward of a six pack. It's just the natural consequences. You got a, you got a six pack. Like the we can strip the reward and punishment because we can start seeing the the cause and effect of things much closer. And I think for whatever reason, with God, this is my more generous theory on what happens with religious guilt. Is we teach a three, four, five year old a three, four, five year old version of guilt, and then of God, and then we never go back and say, hey, let me give you the updated as an adult. And for some of us, especially those of us in recovery, we're forced to, to reassess that. We're, 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 I don't know if it's forced, but we're allowed. I feel more, it's like we're more, we're now allowed to reassess it in a different way because, you know, the space that's held for us is very different. And so it's, it's, it's softer. It's more welcoming. It's more malleable. Sure, but you didn't found out until you were allowed until you got down on your knees and you thought you were going to die from drugs. Well, and again, and again. That's and what again, I meant by forced. And again, no one forced me. There was, there was this calling. And right, I think that's super important too. I think it's super important to, to, to really like for those listening and for people that who have experienced this sort of spiritual awakening that in the depths and in, in, in this in this space where I'm completely spiritually void, religious, anti-religious, spiritually void, completely disconnected from everything and everyone, including my family, my wife, my business partners, I'd reached this hopelessness. You know, this this un uh, this this uh, what is that? Um, um, indus, uh, oh my God. 
incomprehensible demoralization. I'd reached that point. And the only thing I think to do, the only, Ellie, the only thing that comes to my mind is to drop to my knees in front of a, in front of, in front of the last supper carved into a wall Mm -hmm. that I didn't even put there behind my bar and go, God help me. It came from somewhere and it didn't come from, it didn't come from outside of me, Ellie. That's the most, that's what I'm trying to like. I understand. None of it came from the outside. None of it came from my mother's teaching. None of it came from watching TV, watching Jim and Tammy Faye Baker. It wasn't about watching, you know, Jimmy Swagger. None of it came from anywhere outside. There was this moment where I was like, drop to your knees and something inside of me said, God, help me. He came. She came. So, so we're, um, I'm going to disagree on one point, even though I don't want to go down the rabbit hole. Yeah. But I, I think we got answer. We got questions. I know. But I think that some of it is not 100% internal. Um, How in so? Sen- Please expand. Okay. There are certain things that are internal, right? For example, the feelings that you talk about, these feel that that's, I'm not talking globally. I'm talking my experience, right? I haven't done an assessment of every single addict or every single person or anything else. It's my, my experience. There are certain things that definitely feel like, okay, this is right. This is wrong. And I see it a lot in recovery, especially with sponsees who I get to know, just how things which they were once able to tolerate, it can't anymore. A job that they were working in, working for a boss or having a relationship with someone, and suddenly it's like, this doesn't feel good anymore. I can't can't do it. And it starts grading, grading on you. And I saw it with myself, just a lot of different things, relationships or stuff I was doing that just started grading on me. It's like, I don't want to, I don't want to be that person anymore. It just doesn't feel where when I was numb in my addiction for so many years, I never felt that. But as I started getting more and more aligned, there were things that felt off and the punishment was just, okay, it's feeling off. And I got to get rid of this thing. I just, I got to get it out of my life, whatever that meant. And I've seen it with a lot of others. So that's definitely true. But I also think that um, there is room for an outside rule book, right? So for example, for Judaism or the Bible, I haven't rejected that because I don't think we would have all come to this on our own. And I think my proof for that was that my proof for that is that now more than ever, we're seeing a, um, a moral relative relativism that's theft is theft bad, right? Like the Bible says clearly do not steal. It doesn't say like you could steal under these circumstances. It says, do not murder. It doesn't say you could murder under these circumstances. This you know, I don't want to get into stuff yeah, too far, semantic. but yeah. there is just certainly a moral. I don't want to go too far because I feel I've got a topic, but there certainly is a moral relativism. So I think there is room for both, right? There is room for accepting someone else's word yes. or law or guide and saying, this is proper, this is improper. And I don't know that yet, but I don't agree with this idea that there's going to be some sort of punishment if I don't follow it. I think the punishment is like you said. And by the way, Judaism agrees with you. In okay. Judaism, it says there's something called um, ethics of our fathers. It says the reward for a good deed is the good deed itself. And the punishment for a sin is sin itself. I don't, no one needs to come out and burn my hair in order to make, in order to, in order to punish me for right. watching porn. When I watch porn, I'm numb, I'm disconnected, and I feel like shit. And that's it. I don't get a punishment. It's the 
sin is itself. Anyway, I'm talking too long. Let's get some. No, questions. no, no. I'm gonna I'm gonna agree with you on that because it bleeds right into the question that we didn't completely answer for Yochavit. Is that Yochavit? Yochavit. Okay, so which is for many religion creates a sense of belonging and community. So this idea of you know there is this rule book. Okay, so then there is there is for example there is the Bible, there is the Quran, there is the Torah, right? So there's these spiritual guidelines. So the twelve steps, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, the the basic text along with these different belief systems is a guidebook or a, or or yeah a, a, a guidance system that is for people that come in and and well okay so now I'm here what do I do next 100% agree 100% agree but my point too is that it's really just that simple whether it's religion or 12 steps or whatever the case may be there is this sense of belonging. So there's this community aspect. That's number one. Number two, in that community is a set standard operating procedures, so to speak. And 12 steps is the 12 steps. The Bible is the, you know, the Holy Bible, right? 100%. Yeah. Right. So here's this thing. My whole point to this is, do we use that material as a way to guilt people, manipulate people, and punish people for their behavior. Or here's the material, right? Read it yourself. When you do something that goes contrary to some of our teachings, how does that make you feel? Well, it makes me feel crappy, right? Okay, well, then you probably shouldn't do that. Like, let your conscience be your guide. Let your internal guidance system. Right here, we talk about what happened here with this. And so now you can use literature as a way to continue teaching in the way and growing. However, what we're here to discuss is how people, man, uses these things to take control of other humans by making them feel guilty for not doing it the way their interpretation of the literature is. So that's where I believe it goes astray, not in the material, not in the belief systems, it goes wrong with being human. We, some, we have a propensity to take control of things. Okay, so sometimes I see that as where, you know, you have a community and these are just the rules of the road, right? Like to be a part of our group, this is the way you got to talk, this way you got to be, this is or else. And someone who's not part of it, the loss is that, okay, you're no longer part of it. You're doing different things. And, you know, it could be wearing a beard. It could be addressing a certain way. It could be speaking a certain way. It could be... Um, cooking meals for people who give birth to children, right? We'll do it for you if you do it for us. Every every baby is born, whatever it is, right? There's different unwritten rules. And you're saying sometimes someone takes some of those un, un, unwritten rules and instead of saying, hey, this is our group and this is what we say to do if you want to be a part of it, it's like, this is what God says. Yeah. And if you don't, <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Because that's really what it is. And I, you know, I'll just reiterate what I said before. It has nothing to do with religious guilt. It has to do with my own sense of guilt and shame around decisions that I have made, consequences that I have faced. And the journey began 17 years ago. But when I, when I came to that spiritual awakening and I recognized that there was a power, there was a God in my life, that's when, yes, not only did the journey begin, the real work began. Working the 12 steps, it took me four years to complete the 12 steps 
in Narcotics Anonymous. From there, a year into uh, my own recovery, I started sponsoring guys. So for the next decade, I was of service in the 12-step fellowship. I was sponsoring guys, right? And along the way, I was getting divorced and I was going through tumultuous relationships and I was making mistakes and I was hurting people. And I was, you know, all of these things that I was doing in my life that now I couldn't blame drugs and alcohol on. I'm, I'm, I'm sober, I'm clean. And so as I'm facing these different life challenges, I have to make amends. I have to do the right thing. I have to change behavior. I have to learn new things. And so the evolution, once you kind of connect with that spirituality, is like, yeah, what's next? What decision? My choice was to move very heavily into 12 steps. So I committed at least probably more, a decade of my life to 12-step recovery in service of others. And then I pivoted into personal development, where now I've shifted into coaching, uh, emotional healing. Um, and then that's where even my practice has dovetailed because I recognize a lot of my a lot of my clients who had heard my story or share my story on the podcast about my own religious experience and and how traumatizing it was in my childhood would come to me and say, Hey, I experienced this in my life. Is this something you can coach me on? And I started to develop a practice just based, again, it's all on doing the work. I continue to be of service. I continue to evolve and change and learn and grow. And along the way, you make mistakes. And as you make those mistakes, you feel that guilt or shame or whatever that, whatever that negative emotion is on your journey, which compels you to what is it that I need to learn next? You're not knocking guilt and shame. No, You're knocking no, the no, religious I'm knocking guilt and religious I'm knocking shame. how it correlates to an institution using guilt and shame as a form of manipulation. So that's really the platform that I come from. I felt it growing up as a child that it was being used against me to keep me in line. And so, hell, I don't need any help feeling guilt and shame. I, you know, I'm doing just fine on my own, right? Um, and so that's, but that's just the learning throughout throughout the years. Um, I, I do. Can we get to Tim's question? Go ahead. Yeah. All right. My feeling is that the idea of hating the sin, loving the sinner may be a great way of handling the sinner maybe, or marker does. And then, so here we go. Hey, our maker does the same. Yeah. The punishing whole, the whole aspect of punishing and using negativity. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm certified as an NLP practitioner. Language is everything. So, and, and like when Ellie comes to me and says, oh my God, this, I just had this breakthrough. This, I just had this horrible negative thing happen. I go, great, fantastic. What did you learn from it? What's the learning? What's the growth opportunity here? Like, it's always like, okay, fantastic, right? So it's like, oh, I did this horrible thing. No, no, no. Easy does it. Let's, let's take, before you condone yourself, I not condone yourself, before condemn. you uh, condemn yourself, Let's unpack this a little bit. Let's take a look exactly. Can, can I get all the facts, please, sir? Right? So before I start to qualify myself as a sinner, so instead of using the word sinner, I like to use the word human. Right? So why don't we just replace the word sinner with human? And I would say all of us, if we're all human, we're all sinners. If we're all sinners, we're all human. I'd rather use the word human in the sense that we all make mistakes. And as long as we are willing to make amends to them, recognize them, you know, 
grow and evolve because really that's all it is. These mistakes, everything I've ever done, cheating on my first wife, using drugs and alcohol, running through all the money, insulting my, my, my uh, partners, right? All of these things that I've done brought me a tremendous amount of guilt and shame and through that motivated me to make tremendous changes in my life, right? I raised my daughter the polar opposite of the way my mother raised me. I, I, I treat my second wife the complete opposite of the way I treated my first wife, right? So I you, know, you know, what you're saying is you've learned from your sins. I've learned from my mistakes. Well, I was using that word to paraphrase this question. <laughs> I'm always right, going it, to challenge. I always want to challenge language because I want to use the most positive and uplifting way of looking at any situation so that it doesn't wrap itself around some sort of negative condemning sort of language where it's like, hey, you're a sinner. Oh, I'm a mistaker. All right, how about uh, that? Way, who, got, who, who, who feels really negative about being a mistaker? Yeah. <laughs> well, I, that's, that's actually one of the uh, most important um, learnings for me the last few months mm -hmm. has been my view of what God's relationship is with mistakes. Like if someone makes a mistake, then what does it need to be punished? Can it be rectified? Can it be learned from? But what I enjoy, one of the things I enjoy today now is like, I'll, when I find something in Judaism that mirrors well with stuff that worked for me in recovery and I'm like, boom, that fits. So according to Hasidic philosophy, like what you just shared, a sin can be converted to a virtue, right? Or something wrong can be converted to a virtue. You treat your wife, your second wife, better than you would if she was your first and had you never treated someone poorly. Correct. You still have to make it right for the first one. I'm not, that doesn't. Oh, that was a, there was amends that I made. I didn't meet my, right. I didn't meet my second wife till 10 years after. There was a tremendous amount of work that I had to do to become a man deserving of my current wife. Right. Because the man so that I was right after the divorce was not a man worthy of, of my wife. Right. And, and the way I look at it from, a, from an energetic standpoint, almost, because I don't mind the word sin, um, but I, I look at the word sin a little differently. Sin is a, today is a, as an interruption. Right, an interruption. It can be an interruption between a couple different things, but in recovery, they call it conscious contact. Right? Mm -hmm. Are we conscious of the contact we have with higher power? And sins stand in the way of that. It's a it's a blockage to that flow. So if you if you think of, I, I like thinking of it in terms of that because you have a blockage to the flow. Like, okay, I did something wrong to someone. Now I feel disconnected. I feel guilty. I feel ashamed. I feel um, less less connected to myself, right. my own values. Less connected to um, to, to a God less connected to other people, right? Now, if I convert that to, okay, I no longer want to be that person anymore. And because like, I know the look on my face when I, when my wife was my girlfriend and I did not treat her appropriately. And I just want to specify just so that for, for her privacy, it doesn't feel like I No, she once asked me that if I say I did something, it was different. Not that it's much different, but it was as, when she was my girlfriend. I don't know why it's important to her, but it's important to her. So it's important to me. And uh, that look on her face, the shattered glass mm -hmm. she had when she found out I did something with someone else um, is something that motivates me today to, I, like, I never want to not only treat her, I never want to treat anyone else like that. And the fact that knowing that my actions could hurt someone in that way makes me much more careful. So now that interruption is now almost a, a ball of energy that forces the, the water out more powerfully. What once was an interruption 
now is like a spring that now there's much more connection. I'm much more conscious of the way I'm treating other people because I realize that I can cause so much pain and I don't want to do that to someone. So that's what I think it means, the sins into virtues. Yeah. And I believe that whenever you can reframe um, an event in that way, so you can create, you can take, you know, you follow that negative belief system or that negative behavior or even the negative language, you follow it by very strong, positive reframe, which is because of this, it has propelled me, it has inspired me, it has motivated me to be an even greater husband, a better man, a better human being. So now what happens is as you shift that energy and almost the intensity of the language that you use and the way that you use it, it almost like you forget about the first part you said. And what's important is who you are today. Correct. But it, it makes you even more who you are today. Yes. No, I agree. I agree. I agree. I agree. And again, it's, it's at this stage in the game, like where we're at and the work that we've done, right, we can use a lot of different words that no longer have the emotional connection or even the, the emotional um, consequences that come from using certain words. Like, you should be ashamed of yourself. Like, if you say that to certain people, it will break them because they've been hearing it for so long. That's a wounding. That's a trauma, right? Somebody says, you should be ashamed of yourself. And I go, for what? What did I do? You know? Like, it, I don't have, it doesn't, you know, I, I'm no longer wrapped around. It doesn't have the same trigger. It doesn't have the same trigger, right? So there's, a, there's a question here that I really want to tackle. He says like this, I love listening to both of you talking about guilt. I have a lot a lot of that with my son as I pushed him away because he went against my values and our, and our religion till he became an addict, which is now tearing our family apart. Let me start with this. First of all, Rosa, I want to honor you right now in this moment. It's, it takes a lot of, a lot of courage um, and a lot of vulnerability to, to own up to something so painful. So first of all, I want to I honor you for, for acknowledging that this is something that, that a, a mistake, a mistake that potentially that that's how you're feeling, that maybe I, I, maybe I made a mistake with my son and that pushing religious values and ideology too harshly. And when we think about a child, when we think about being a child, being a teenager and to under, just to, just to think what capacity, even especially a man, Okay, when we talk about women are usually five to 10 years more mature than men and and process information very differently. So as a man, as a teenager, trying to make sense of what my mother wants, what the religious wants from me, what do I want? How do I proceed? What's the right thing to do? And not having a safe place to share vulnerably, kind of like what you're doing right now, which is, you know, um, sharing openly and asking for help. Did he have that same space, right? So for parents, for, I mean, really specifically for parents, um, what it did for me, because I became a drug addict, so I'm your son, right? Like, that's what it did for me. I was 18 years old. I left the religion. I left my parents. I left God. I left it all. I took the journey of Siddhartha, right? I just completely went off the rails, By the time I hit rock bottom, I was so addicted to drugs and alcohol that I I wanted to die, right? And and probably with the amount of consumption that I'd done, I I probably could have. 
but I didn't. And I know that that, that that is a part of my journey. And because of it, my daughter, who's Catholic, okay, my daughter, who's Catholic, pseudo-Catholic, that's her grandparents are, are Catholic. And so her, her mother is Catholic. And so she got her first communion, but they feel like they're Catholic light. And so what I've told my daughter is this. I said, honey, as far as I'm concerned, coming from where I was raised and how I was brought up, what's most important to me is that you make your own choices and you make your own decisions. And they are not clouded by the decisions and the choices that I've made in my life. There's things that you want to do. There's experiences that you want to have. My job is to be here to support you. When you get lost, when you get stuck, when you need help, that's what I'm here to do. I'm here to help you in any way that I can. So going to school, staying Catholic, whatever decisions that you make, they're entirely up to you. Knowing that whatever decisions you make, everything comes with a consequence. Everything, everything has its own consequence. And that's really how you'll... If there if there's payment to be made, or if there's anything that's going, if there's you know again negative consequences that come from this, they're made by your decisions and not influenced by anything that I say. And I think that's as important, right, to know that somewhere along the lines, how I was taught made it difficult for me to really truly listen to my child. And now I'm in a lot of pain because maybe I should have, right? So I love you. Let me just send you some love, Rosa. Let me send you some love. And just tell you that your your heart is in the right place. Like right now, just where you're at, asking for help, acknowledging what has happened, you know, and going, you know, what do I do next? You just love him. You just, it's the first chance you get, you wrap your arms around him and you just tell him, listen, if there's anything that I can do, if there's any way that I can help you, tell me I'm here for you now. And I'm not here to, 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 you know, unfold or unleash my own views on you. I'm just here to help and love you. Thanks, Omar. Um, Rose, I have a few thoughts as well. I'm going to assume Judaism, but I'm not. Um, so I may talk from that perspective just in reading your question. So first of all, one of the reasons that I speak, and I echo a lot of what Omar said in terms of um, respecting, honoring the willingness to to put that out there, because we often want to focus on what someone else did versus saying, Hey, this is where, this is where I made a mistake. So I want to say a couple of things about it from my perspective. So while I I didn't become a drug addict, I, I feel like in many ways, yes, I'm your son, right? Those choices. And one of the reasons why I uh, do what I do now in terms of being public about it is I think there's such a huge misperception, misconception around what an addict is. There's so much negativity. There's, there's so much negative bias. My son, you write in your my son uh, became an addict. And an addict is not a thing. An addict is the other side of a coin of a very sensitive soul. That's what, and it's not, your son didn't become an addict. An addict is an expression of, an ex, of, of a sensitive soul. And I don't yeah. speak necessarily about myself when I say this, but I see it over and over and over in recovery. I've met so many people who embrace a higher power and a God and a very demanding program, extremely demanding, much more demanding than religion ever was of me. And these same people rejected Judaism in their youth. And teachers and parents looked at them and said, these are their, whatever negative words you can associate with them, 
right? They're, they're no good. They don't take this seriously. They don't believe in God. They're fried. They're off the derrick. Whatever words we, we can say, we throw it out at them and assume that they're just not capable of really understanding spirituality or really understanding God, and they're bad apples, so to speak. And that becomes even more reinforced when they do something like go to drugs or go to something else. And Abraham Tversky says this. Chase Taub makes a lot of these same points. Abraham Tversky says that there's humans are the only um, entity that overconsume. Overconsume. I'll add also dogs that live in human homes. Right. Sometimes you see a couple overweight dogs in human homes, but in general, there is no overconsumption outside of the human species. And the overconsumption is in so many different forms. It's in food, it's in sex, it's in pornography, it's in gambling, money issues, overworking. It just, it runs the gamut where we just do too much of a good thing way too often. And most of us are guilty of it in one way or another. America has 40% obesity rate. And that's probably half caused by people who are trying to make way too much money on crap food. And another half by people who are trying to do something else other than satisfy their hunger cravings by eating food. And what Abraham Tversky says is that the reason why is because there is no hunger drive that gets you to eat to 400 pounds. That doesn't exist. What does exist is a spirituality, a drive for spirituality, and a drive for spiritual thirst that misdirected goes into another place. And I'll give you an example of this from someone who, um, I was at a retreat. It's called the Jewish Recovery Retreat. It happens every year in Boca Raton, except for this year. And uh, a 21, 22-year-old kid who grew up in Williamsburg, very, very religious, uh, left his family, became very addicted to drugs, and eventually found recovery, stood up in front of his whole family because they had come to support him in recovery. And that's where I'm going to get to with this. And he read a poem. I don't remember all of the poem, but one of the things he said, well, the, the, the refrain in the poem that he kept saying is, God, when I stuck that needle in my arm, I was aiming for you. I missed my mark. And then at different points, I, I was aiming for you. I missed my mark. And when I did this, I made this mistake. I was aiming for you. I missed my mark. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say that uh, your son, wherever he is in this addiction, whether he's pre-recovery, in recovery, uh, early recovery, and wherever you are in this, right, I have no doubt that both of you were aiming for him and missed, and missed the mark in the sense that there are very, very positive intentions, certainly behind all of these things, whether it's wanting the best for children or whether it's a child wanting the best for themselves and not being able to find it. So the only comfort I can give you is what Omar said and what I said, and hopefully our experience helps you with this, is that while you may not be in a place to influence your son anymore, there is that. There is that higher power that truly exists. It existed for me when I hit my knees. It existed for Omar when he hit his knees. And despite the fact, I think my mom is listening in, but despite the fact that over time, my, my parents and other rabbis were not able to get through to me, there, there was someone that I was willing to turn to who did somehow show up with the guidance. In Omar's case, a therapist from 10 months before. In my case, a book I had read, a TED talk I had seen, plus a therapist, plus a guy I'd met in recovery, all of these things led me to one day find the rooms of recovery. So while it's concerning to you maybe that you don't have that 
control anymore over him and you can't influence him necessarily the way you want understand that there is still a higher power that can very easily guide him to the place that he needs to get to and underlying him is not a problem child underlying that drive is i'm going to guess if you have more than one child he is your most sense he was your most sensitive child as a kid and that sensitivity is to to it's a sensitivity to injustice, a sensitivity to lies, a sensitivity to things that just don't seem right, don't seem right. And over and over, you'll hear from addicts in the room and say, I grew up in a religious community, but they told me all sorts of things about God, and I saw people mistreat each other, and it just did not jive with me. There is a sensitivity to it. My little brother told me the other day, I was speaking in a synagogue, and I spoke about some of these topics, religious guilt and everything else, and I went into my story, and he said to me, um, you have a really easy time talking about personal things. And so I just smiled. And he said, I guess you do it so often you get desensitized. I said, maybe I'm not desensitized. Maybe I'm sensitive to something else. And he said, what's that? And I said, bullshit. I'm just sensitive to bullshit. Right? And I don't like it. I don't want someone to stand up in front of a room and tell me something that they don't, that they don't believe in. And maybe your son felt the same way. And you made certain choices. I had no doubt your intentions, your intentions were good. But at this stage in the game, at this stage in the game, as an addict, as someone who's made mistakes, we have to believe that the past belongs to God. Like everything that happened in the past, we have no power, we have no control over there. So it was meant to happen as ex- exactly as it was meant to happen. My mom maybe feels guilty. Maybe she, maybe she thinks she did some things wrong. I hope that the, the life I live today, I demonstrate that she did everything perfectly, just the way she needed Because had I got a different lesson from my parents, had I got a different lesson from my family, I would not have been forced into the life I was. And with that came also the strength to do something else. With the willingness to go into addiction and to go into strip clubs day after day and all of those, the mistakes that I made, quote unquote, there also was a higher power that was guiding me and said there is a way out. And when you find a way out, you can do things like this and hopefully share it with others that can find them a way out. So number one, I would start by A, accepting where you're at. It's tough, it's painful, it's beautiful, but it's also, and it's tough and it's painful, but it also contains a ton of beauty. The kind of beauty that can get people to a place like this. This is Omar's life today. This is my life today. And we found this because we had to go down that U of pain and bounce back up to somewhere we found a lot it's, of meaning. In the it's the hero's journey. 100%. And for your side, while there may be some guilt associated with it, I would just say it's never too late to let him know that, hey, that was the past. My mom used to rail on me about, a di- about religion all the time, all the time. And then one day I saw there was just a change of heart with her. She said, I'm not going to do that anymore. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you a story. When I stopped keeping the Sabbath, I didn't tell my parents right away. I wasn't sure how they were going to react. Anyway, I had a, a, it was, I think, the holiday of Shavuot, right? It was a two-day holiday. My family was all going, getting together, going to upstate New York. I missed my flight in the morning, which meant that there was no way I was making it before. And I, so I called my mom and I said, you know, two choices. One, I don't come because I can't come before the holiday. The other is that I come on the holiday, but that means I'm getting in the car. I'm quote unquote, violating the holiday. And what, what she answered, right? She didn't call a rabbi before. She basically said, I just want to see my son. And that's what you got to do. You're not there to teach him religion. You're not there to do any of those things at this stage in the game. That's past. All you're there is to tell him that. And if you say that to him and he believes it, the rest can fold into the rearview mirror. What happened in the past happened in the past. We are where we are today. And 
there is, like I said, tremendous beauty in this life. An addict is not a doomed life. That's all I got. Thanks for letting me share. Beautiful. Beautiful story. Beautiful story. Um, Rose, I hope you heard us. We're sending you lots of love. Some finishing thoughts from you, some finishing thoughts from me, and we'll call it a night. This is a topic that affected a tremendous amount of my time and my life and my energy. There was so much anger and bitterness and resentment that I had through most of my life that even 10 years into recovery, it wasn't until I got into personal development, it wasn't until I hired an an NLP coach that helped me identify the emotional wounding that still had not healed, that I was able to actually forgive myself, forgive my parents, move on with my life, let it go, embrace it the way Ellie just said, like look at it as this was my hero's journey. This was my life's journey. If I hadn't experienced all of these things in my life, then I would not be the person that I am today. However, I still needed to do the work associated with healing all of the anger and bitterness and resentment that I felt. I felt like a victim. I felt like there was justice that needed to be served, that I had a childhood that was ripped off and stolen from me. And it prevented me from really being myself. It prevented me from self-actualizing. And so what I've learned so much in my life is that the importance of having the right people. If it wasn't for being in 12-step recovery, if it wasn't for me navigating and moving into personal development, it wasn't for me meeting people like Ellie and other people that are in the personal development space, I would have never been able to heal from all of that religious guilt that I had that I had felt and then manifested that or really kind of reframed, not reframed it, repurposed it as anger, bitterness, and resentment. I had to let it all go. So share about it. Talk to people about it. Find people that feel the same way that you do or look for people that have struggled with the same afflictions or perceived afflictions because the first step is just really sharing about it. As soon as you share about it, you're going to get fresh perspective from others, and that's going to allow you to to immediately get a a, a fresh perspective for yourself and start the healing process. Thanks. Omar, I know you're uh, specific about words. So use a word, I I think, to describe uh, some of what both of us do as personal development. And I think that's an aspect of it. I I think it's it's one small aspect of it. I think most of it, and I think why... There's a certain sense to pride in the way you live your life today and the way some of the time, the way I live my life is not personal development as much as it is a life of service, right? So one that gets satisfaction from seeing how we can help others. And for me, where that satisfaction comes the most is not service in the sense of I can help an old lady across the street because... Not that it's not worthwhile, but that's not what gives me the deepest satisfaction. What gives me the deepest satisfaction is the stuff that I tripped over, the stuff that once made me feel a ton of shame, that once made me feel really bad about myself. And I was like, wow, I really had to learn how to navigate that one so that I understood the pain of someone else who's stuck in the same place today and then can hopefully help 
help them. And I believe my sponsor is on, is on this call. Uh, he likes to say that he was out there for 40 years. I walked into recovery at 27. I think he walked into recovery in his 50s. And thanks to his work and his his work with me and his work with many others, he's become a, a shining light on the hill for many people. And the, the amount of lives that he's affected right, by living a life of service is tremendous. But it, he did not develop his um, who he is without being out there for 40 years, without 40 years of tripping in the dark. And almost anyone who comes over to him, he's like, yeah, I know that. Like that experience, I know that. I've been there because he's been bumping around in the dark for that many years. And then that becomes converted to eventually a, a life of service. And then it feels right, right? That feeling of, I often leave these webinars, I haven't done them for a while, but feeling more energized, feeling better, right? Feeling like I've done something positive. And one of the ways I pick the topics and one of the ways I choose where I'm going to focus my energy is what are those things that have been kicking me in the ass? And this religious guilt, I was feeling bad about, about it because, you know, I really like Dove's question before, which is that, is it just a, a, this thing, this one and done? And I felt like it for a time. I felt like when I embraced a higher power, it was like one and done. And in the last few months, I realized the insidious nature of religious guilt, the, the danger of when someone suggests something and suggests it in the name of God. How do they know? How do they know? How do they know? I want to say again. And in the process, they destroy not the religion. That's not the point. It's okay to destroy someone. It's okay to destroy the religion. It destroys someone's spirituality. Because eventually when they start hearing these terms as an adult, all they remember is the pain of their childhood and the the words that they're associated with. And it oftentimes takes the deep, deep pain of a destructive life to finally say, no, you know what? Maybe I can turn to a higher power because I've tried everything else. I've tried the drugs. I've tried the alcohols. I've tried the gambling. I've tried the women. I've tried the money. I've tried everything. And maybe I'm going to try the very last thing that happens that you want to go back to. And for me to go through that path, realize the insidious nature of it, and then to be able to get on a call like this, that's that path, that's that journey that has me feeling that not only am I of service now, but the last bunch of years have also now registered in, into, into meaning. So I thank everyone for joining this call tonight. Um, it's cool to have some of the people on the call, my sponsor and Omar on this. We've, <laughs> we've done a lot of work together. A ton. And, uh, yeah, ton of work. You know, and, yeah. you know, real quick, sorry, Ellie, and you're right. You know what I did? I did a disservice and I undervalued, you know, that personal development and growth because really it's been the last five years of my life that have really made the difference. And when I talk about personal development growth, right, there's so many facets of it. There is, I've had three different coaches. One that was, I had a coach for a year. I had a coach that was an intense NLP coach, right? Who was specific on breaking, you know, my childhood trauma and healing emotional wounds from childhood, right? And then I've had multiple mentors, mastermind groups, right? I have done a tremendous amount of work. You and I have worked together for almost a year, right? So for me, not for me to 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 say personal development and not to expand on just how much, how much is out there, right? Going to see Tony Robbins in Unleash the Power Within, you know, 
constantly the different certifications, going to Minnesota and getting uh, certification as a recovery coach. I mean, 10 years of 12-step recovery, 10 years of sponsoring other men, right? Of, of coaching for free, basically, right? and helping others, being in service of, right? Removing myself from the victim role and becoming part of the solution. Like there's so much. So thank you for, for really bringing that to, to the forefront because, you know, like Dove was saying too, like we're focusing a lot on like what happened. What about the solution? And these are the solutions that have worked for me. So thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, for me, the, the primary solution is why I think everyone who joins this and the messages I often get from people, the way that some of the, some of these calls impact them, that's what it. That's what the purpose of this is. You know, it's, oh, self development. It's so selfish. Yeah. It could be, but what's the primary goal? What's the end goal? Is to be able to to use that in a way to help others. Well, there you have it, my conversation with Omar Pinto on religious guilt. I believe this topic is important that it itself will turn into a series and we'll have this conversation with several others as uh, the response uh, from those who attended it live uh, was fairly overwhelming. And I did miss an important point, which I want to address here when I mentioned the story of my mom and me offering her to uh, come upstate, but letting her know that it meant that I'd be driving on a holiday. She just said, you know, I'd love, I just want to see my son. You know, I think the main point of that is that about a year or so ago, uh, my wife and I made a decision not to get in the car anymore on the Sabbath. And while I, I don't see that necessarily as the end goal, right, is how do we get there? But the futile nature of guilt for me becomes very apparent through my story and the story I know of many others, that if we want to achieve the desired goal of people doing certain things, it's far better to teach them about the positive aspects of doing whatever it is that we want them to do versus the opposite. Of course, there's room for a certain amount of regret, a certain amount of guilt, but obviously what we're talking about in these conversations is where it spills over to a point where it's interfering with one's daily life. A good barometer, I think, was shared with me by a teacher and a friend of mine, Rabbi Simon Jacobson. He said, how do you know if the guilt is good or bad? And I believe he quoted the Tanya, one of the first works in uh, the Chabad Hasidic movement. And he said that if the guilt is motivating you towards action, it's motivating you towards positive action, then it's a good healthy type. But if it's demoralizing you, demotivating you, causing you to feel shame, then you know that it's the type that's not coming from a positive place. And it's that that we're addressing. Thanks again for tuning in. Please share this with those who you think may find it helpful. Rate, review, whatever it is that helps get the word out to more people. Thanks so much. Have an awesome day.